Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Today's scripture reading is from uh, Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 10. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear, and I replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated right beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Christian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a book called A Secular Age. And in this book, he addresses and he explains uh, the culture that we live in today. He does a lot more. It's like a huge book and kind of intimidating, and I haven't read it all the way through. But he explains the culture that we live in today, the society we live in today, the world that we live in today. Uh, We would call it maybe like a worldview um, that uh, we live in today. Uh, The secularism of late modernity that pervades our culture pervades the air we breathe to the point where we are actually all a part of it. And one of the things he points out, which is relevant for our passage today, is this idea of what he calls a closed world system, a closed world system for a variety of reasons, right? Industrial revolution, enlightenment, scientific revolution, French revolution, all the other revolutions. Uh, For a variety of reasons, we now live in a closed world system. And what that means is that everything that is true Everything that happens, all reality can be either explained or discovered by reason and or scientific discovery. In a closed world system, nothing that is outside of the closed world, i.e. the spiritual, the transcendent deity, uh, God, nothing that's outside of that closed world can enter into and act or change or live within the world that we live in. And likewise, nothing that is in a closed world can participate with or in the transcendent or divine. Everything can be explained. And if we can't, we just need more time to discover it or think about it. A a closed world system means that there is no transcendent quality to life, that God does not interfere with humans, 
that God does not speak or act or move or live among us, and likewise that humans cannot participate in and with God. And now you hear this and you might think, well, that's typical atheism, that's typical agnosticism, and that's true, right? Atheism is there is no God, there is no transcendence, so everything in the world is all that there is. There is no inherent meaning in anything. And on the agnostic side of things, it's there is a God, but he doesn't move. We live in a closed world and he doesn't move or act in our world today. But one of Charles Taylor's points is that this worldview, this uh, culture, this closed world, it doesn't just influence and affect atheists and agnostics. It actually really affects Christians as well. Here's a, here's a few examples of what a closed world system might look like. In our closed world, waking up in the morning is because you, you know, set your alarm clock, because you ended a, a REM uh, sleep cycle. Historically and biblically, waking up is a miracle because it was actually God that woke you up in the morning. In our closed world system, breathing is breathing in, you know, oxygen and breathing out carbon um, uh, di dioxide. Yeah, not monoxide. Carbon monoxide would kill you. Uh, carbon dioxide. And your heart is beating because of the muscles. And I don't really know how it works, but like that, that's, we have a scientific explanation for, for why we breathe and why we, why our heart is beating. But historically and biblically, it is actually God, the one that is giving you life. God, the one that is giving you air to breathe and making your heart beat. In fact, we actually have a song about this that we sing often. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, pour out our praise. Another example, in our closed world system, you get the job that you have because you networked well, because you sent your resume to people, because you um, worked hard. You are in that relationship because of the things that you did. You are, live in that place because of what you did. In our closed world system, governors, officials, presidents are put there by us. We vote. We have the power. We put them in office. Historically and biblically, it's actually God that appoints rulers, God that appoints government officials, and God that appoints presidents. And this is where I think it hits home for Christians uh, a lot. In our closed world system, prayer is impractical. Prayer is a waste of time. Honestly, how many times have I thought, I've, I've thought this far too many times. I, I have so much to do right now, I can't pray. I, I have so much to do right now. I can't waste my time doing nothing and, and, and praying. I need to get onto the real work. I need to stop wasting my time comforting myself by praying. I need to do because I, I'm the one that if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we think I'm the one that's going to work. I'm the one that's building these relationships. I'm the one that's parenting, that's setting my alarm clock to get up to that's scheduling meetings, that's getting that new job that uh, has to be the one to build that resume. And if we're honest with ourselves, this closed world system can actually permeate our thoughts and our, and our uh, feelings sometimes. And functionally, we wouldn't say this, but functionally, we live as if God is just following us in our endeavors, in our life, following our lead, rather than recognizing and believing that God is the one that is leading, that is guiding, that is moving today, and we are following him. Now, I, I say all this not for some, you know, philosophical theological, intellectual exercise, although those, those are helpful. And if you ever want to have those conversations, I'd be more than willing. But I say all this to orient ourselves to the world and narrative of the Bible in general and Nehemiah 2 and 3 in particular. A lot of sermons, devotionals, Bible studies, 
they uh, try to orient the Bible to the self rather than orient the self to the Bible. And we have to understand that the characters in the Bible, excuse me, they don't just believe that they randomly woke up that morning. They believe that God woke them up. The, 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 the characters in the Bible, they don't believe that they're just breathing and sustaining their own life through food, water, and shelter. They believe that it is God who gives them life every single day. They don't believe that they just randomly got the job by working hard and being honest and sending their ancient form of a resume around. They believe God put them there intentionally. And specifically to Nehemiah 2 and 3, Ezra and Nehemiah didn't believe that Cyrus and the Persians just happened to have a more powerful military, and that's why they defeated Babylon. They actually believed that God raised up Cyrus and the Persians to defeat the Babylonians in order to fulfill the word of the Lord that Yahweh, the God of all gods, the God of the heavens, is true to his promises. Nothing happens in the scriptures without God's hand in it. And therefore, nothing happens in our lives today without God's hand in it. You are sitting here today because God brought you here. Do you know that the scriptures say that that God goes before you? That before you even, right here in this, I'm going to zero in on this moment right here. God goes before us, which means that before we even sat, walked into this room, God was here. The scriptures say that God has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all, all. His sovereignty rules over all. Do you believe that? Because the world that we live in today and the spiritual forces of darkness that influence our culture outside and our thoughts and beliefs and hearts internally, they want us to believe that things just happen. Things just happen. Things they can, That's explained. That can be explained by reason, by logic, by scientific discovery, by effort. Now, let me get this. Let me like shoot straight with you. Did you set your alarm clock this morning? Yes. But did God wake you up? Yes. Did you get that job because you worked hard and you sent your resume and you networked and all this stuff? Yes. But did God give you that job? Yes. Do you, you know, breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide? Yes. But is it actually God the one that's sustaining your life? And if he stopped, you would be dead immediately? Yes. That is who our God is. He is alive right now. He moves he acts, he speaks to us, he orchestrates, he sustains all things by his powerful word. It is in and through him that all things hold together. I feel like I'm <clears throat> I feel like I'm wrapping up my sermon and I haven't even touched Nehemiah 2 yet. All this to say, all this to say, is that this can be it can be really tempting to think that the conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes in chapter 2 just happened. Just like it's tempting to think that our conversations that you and I are in just happened. Nehemiah was just a good leader. He struck while the iron was hot. He was in the right place at the right time. He did it by his own will and volition. But as we'll see today in just a few minutes, Nehemiah refuses, refuses to believe that these events just happened as if he's living in some closed world system where God doesn't move. Instead, he knows that God is the one that's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And guess what? Guess what? As Christians today, we follow and serve and worship the same God that Nehemiah does. 
And therefore, we also have to refuse to believe that things just happen as if we close, we live in a closed world system. And rather, we get to enter into a life of faith and believe and praise God for his sovereignty, knowing that God does move today. So how do we get to that conclusion from Nehemiah 2? Great question. I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> Last week, thank you. Last week, we started uh, the book of Nehemiah, which takes place 13-ish years after Ezra 10. Remind, reminder, Ezra Nehemiah is originally one, it's two books in our Bible, but it's originally one um, unit, one work, one book, if you will. Um, so Ezra, the character, right, he enters the scene in Ezra chapter 7. He builds up a community around the Torah. He builds the worship practices and the sacrificial system. Then in Ezra 9 and 10, we learned a few weeks ago that there's this egregious sin and mass divorce, and then the book ends. Then as if like, you know, in movies where like uh, the screen goes black and there's like this font or this text at the bottom and it says like 13 years later, that's what, that's what happened in between Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 1 where like Ezra 10 ended and then the screen went black and then like this text came up and it said 13 ish. I say ish cause you know, you kind of know, but you don't really know 13 ish years later and you're transported, you, you leave Jerusalem and you go back to Persia and you're introduced to this guy named Nehemiah. By the way, Ezra is still alive. He's just getting pretty old, and we're going to run into him again uh, in a few chapters here in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah in chapter one, right? We learned last week from Dave that he hears about the disaster of his city, and he prays for four months. And that is where we left off, and now we're going to pick up in chapter two of Nehemiah. And we're going to go through some of these verses here together. So Nehemiah chapter two, verse one through, let's let's look at what verses one through um, one through two. Uh, during the month of uh, Nisan, or Nisan, uh, in the 20th year, uh, tip, if you don't know how to pronounce a word in the Bible or a name in the Bible, just say it with utmost confidence and everybody will believe you. <laughs> during the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear. All right, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Cupbearers have very dangerous jobs because they could, for, for two reasons. First, they could just die if somebody tried to poison the king, right? Like a cupbearer, they take the um, cup, they bear the cup pretty self-explanatory. And they, if somebody's trying to poison the king, they're going to put it in their wine. Well, the cupbearer is there. So like if, if somebody's trying to poison the king, they die instead of the king. So that's like, just like the base reason why it's a pretty dangerous job. The other reason why it's a dangerous job is because they could also just get killed if the king has like a sliver of inclination that he doesn't trust them anymore right? One wrong look from the cupbearer to the king, one downcast face. And the king, I mean, if you were the king and you see your probably most trusted person, like besides your like wife or maybe your right hand man, the, the cupbearer is like up there. Um, and he looks off my, I mean, our, our first thought would probably be like, he's, he's in, he's in a plot to kill me. And so, you know, you snap your fingers and that person's dead. So Nehemiah looks sad, which is not a great, I, I, uh, thing, not a, not a great uh, face to have when you're in this situation. So Artaxerxes says, uh, Hey, you look sad. What's up? You've never, you've never been sad before. This has to be something in the heart. So no wonder Nehemiah is filled with fear, right? Cause he's like, Oh no, Oh no. Like I, 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 I don't want him to think that I'm plotting against him. So 
in order to mitigate the fear, he just blurts out in verse three and uh, replied to the king, may the king live forever. Nice. Verse three, why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I.e. he has a very good reason to be sad. The king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens. Notice what Nehemiah does not do. Nehemiah, he, Nehemiah states his um, case. Hey, my the city where my ancestors are buried is laid in ruins. The king says, what do you want? What does Nehemiah not do? Nehemiah does not answer the king. He doesn't answer the king first. The first thing he does is not answer the king. Nehemiah was just asked a question by the most powerful ruler in the known world. And instead of immediately answering him, he prays to the God who he serves, the God of the heavens. Now, was this like a 10 second prayer? Maybe a two second prayer? Maybe. I doubt he like was asked this question by the king and then he like ran away and prayed for a few hours and then came back. I I doubt that, but right but but his first response wasn't let me let me at, let me answer the king his first response was even if it was just a second prayer was to pray to the god of the heavens why because he believes Nehemiah believes that god is actually the one who is in control of his situation and circumstances let's keep reading verse 5 so um he prays to the god of the heavens and then verse 5 Nehemiah continues and i answered the king if it pleases the king And if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I might rebuild it. Nehemiah's first request is that he wants to go home and he wants to rebuild the city. Remember what uh, was rebuilt in the first act of Ezra Nehemiah was the temple. The, the second act of Ezra Nehemiah, uh, what was rebuilt, the Torah, the community, the worship practices. And now we're at the beginning of the third act of Ezra Nehemiah, and we have the rebuilding of the city, of the walls, and of the gates. So, verse 6, what is the king's response? The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. Boom. Done. Mission accomplished. Nehemiah got his request answered from God and from the king. We should be happy, right? He should be happy. He literally got his question answered, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 7. I also said to the king, I wonder if what was going through on the Nehemiah's head was like, oh, that was that was easier than I thought. Maybe I can maybe I can double down and, and ask a few more things of the king, right? Bold move. But I love it. Verse 7, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. He wanted the king's name. He wanted a decree from this king to grant him safe passageway to Jerusalem. Because if you get there, if if Nehemiah were to get there, and we're going to see this in a little bit, there's some enemies. There are, there's no, there's no ruler. There's no governor in um, Jerusalem at this time. So all the other governors of the, of the surrounding regions, they're just taking advantage of Jerusalem and it's, they're not a threat to them. Right? So Nehemiah knows that if he goes over there and he's like now in charge and he's like barking orders, the other governors and rulers of the surrounding regions, they're going to be pretty ticked. So he wanted, Nehemiah wanted uh, a guarantee from the king that nothing could stop him once he got to the land. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps, he has, he has another request. Not just can I take some time off, not just can you send me a letter with your, you know, your seal of approval on it. Verse eight, and Nehemiah keeps asking, and let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest. Casual that a king just 
owned a forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city, and the home where I will live. Casual that he just asked uh, uh, for, um, or like that the king has his own force. Not casual that Nehemiah just requested, again, from the most powerful man in the known world, three things, to take time off, to give him protection on a hundred plus mile long journey, and to supply all of the material that he needs to do all of the work he's planning on doing that. Not only that, look, there's a little nod here to some um, uh, selfishness by Nehemiah. That we picked up that we were going to continue to pick up on in, in the narrative so look at what he says he says i want to rebuild the gates i want to rebuild the city wall and i want to rebuild the home where i will live nehemiah wants the king's supplies to rebuild his own home so keep that tucked away in the back of your head we are going to see a little bit of this theme continue out uh, throughout the rest of of the book of nehemiah so at this point we should be thinking nehemiah you're off your rocker, dude. This is an impossibly tall order. There's no way this king in his natural mind will grant you these three audacious requests. But then what happens? The last section, uh, the last phrase of verse eight, the king granted my requests for the gracious hand of my God was on me. The king granted my requests for a better way, better way to say that is because the king granted my request because the gracious hand of my God was on me. Who granted the requests? Who, who granted Nehemiah's request? Well, the king. That's what it says, right? The king granted my requests. But why and how did the king grant the request? Because the gracious hand of my God was on me. Who, who granted the request? The king or God? Yes. Was it just the king? No. Was it just God? No. Was it the king and God? Yes. The king granted the request in real time and real space. But the reason he did it was because God was acting in real time and in real space through the king. Nehemiah does not believe that it was just the king that gave him this request. In a closed world system, it's just a hap. It's just, it's just. Well, the king did it. Maybe he was in a good mood. I know that it said the queen was beside him. Maybe the queen, like, you know, mitigated the situation a little bit, and he felt more compassionate. So he did. No, 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 no. The king granted it because God granted it. This is what it means to follow a God who lives and acts and moves in humanity in real space and real time. And we're gonna pick up on that. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm gonna summarize the rest of uh, chapter two. And also summarize chapter three, and then we're going to jump back uh, to the end of, of chapter two. So Nehemiah gets this request answered, right? Um, he goes over to um, uh, Jerusalem. He gets his 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 men, and there's this third. Finally, there's a third wave of of returnees. Each act each act in Ezra Nehemiah has had a, a wave of people returning, of Israelites returning to to the land. So this is the third. Um, the third movement. And uh, he gets there and we hear a little bit about this guy named Sanballat who's pretty ticked. He's a governor of a surrounding region. And then that was kind of it. So once he gets there, Nehemiah, the first night, it's the middle of the night, he wakes up by himself. He gets on his little animal. It just says animal. Maybe it was a horse. Maybe it was a mule. And then he like he, he takes a, a tour of the old city. Remember, Nehemiah's never been there before. He, he does. He's never been there before. He's only heard about this in, in stories. He was born in Babylon or Persia, I guess. Um, and so he's never been there. So he takes a little tour on his uh, on his animal and he goes around in the middle of the night to look at all of the city walls, to look at all the gates, to see what 
to see what the problem is. He's about to ask probably thousands of people to help him rebuild something. He needs to know what there is to rebuild. He needs to look at it. He needs to take inventory, right? So he actually only goes around like half of the city because um, the, the the walls were so broken that he couldn't, you know, his his animal couldn't go through. Anyway, and then he uh, he gets back. Uh, and the next morning, he gathers all of the all of the people. He gathers the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest of those who would be doing the work. And he basically like gives them this um, the, the this kind of I don't want to say pep talk. That's too you know shallow. This encouragement. And he says, "Hey guys, look, we are in despair. We are in uh, uh, we we are in ruins. Literally, our city is in ruins. We are kind of a disgrace." Like, like this is embarrassing, not just for us, but also for the Lord. Let's get together. Let's band together and let's rebuild this wall. And so they do. They, well, they start actually. So all these people, they're encouraged and they're like, yes, let's do this. Um, and then this guy, Sanballat is really upset again. And that's where we're going to zero in, in just a minute. And then chapter three, um, chapter three, if you actually like look at the little subtitle thing above chapter, chapter three, um, it said, well, mine says rebuilding the walls. And then like every like paragraph or so, there's a different gate named. So chapter three, all chapter three is, is, is a list of the people who are rebuilding the walls and the gates and a list of the gates and the walls that are being rebuilt. So you've got, you know, the fish gate, the old gate, the broad wall, the tower of the ovens, the angle, the water gate, nice the uh valley gate the dung gate all, all these gates so chapter three is just a list of people who are rebuilding the gates and what gates they're rebuilding cool clear as mud great let's go back to chapter two real quick <clears throat> i want to zero in on chapter two verse 20 actually i want to uh let's jump up to verse 19 chapter two verse 19 i'm gonna read these two verses when uh sanballat the horonite Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about this. They mocked and despised us. Heard about this as in heard about the rebuilding of the walls. They mocked and despised us and said, what is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Verse 20. I gave them this reply. Nehemiah is talking back to them. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Who did Nehemiah give credit to for the success of the rebuilding of the wall? The God of the heavens. Nehemiah didn't even mention Artaxerxes' name. Didn't even mention even the phrase, the title, the king. He didn't say God and the king is going to give us success. But who, who just gave him literally like time off from his job, uh, uh, his own like personal escort and a bunch of supplies the king artaxerxes and yet nehemiah has the audacity we would call it audacity if you're like just a fly on the wall you would call it the audacity to say uh that he didn't give credit at all to any of that any of that credit to artaxerxes rather he says the god of the heavens yahweh god he is the one who is going to grant them success do you see this do you see this idea of this closed world system and and i think i'm 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 Harping on this point over and over and over again is because I think it permeates my thoughts and and maybe even our thoughts more than we realize that Nehemiah in no way, shape or form thinks that it just so happened that he got safe passage. It just so happened that uh, he struck while the iron was hot and Artaxerxes had a good day. And so that's why he 
gives full and complete credit to what is going on to the God of the heavens who acts, who moves, who lives, who guides, who is here, who is present. He's been present then and he is here present now. And so that's actually one of the first things I want to, uh, a couple takeaways from this. What, what do we do with all of this? The first thing is, is and this will be up on the screen as well, is um, God is present. Do you believe that? Growing up, I would go to, um, you know, summer camps in uh, every summer or what for for a week I would go to a summer camp yeah every summer and I I absolutely love summer camps it's some of the most formational and uh, foundational uh, times in my life I look back on those memories with with just just fondness um but one of the things about summer camp especially when I was a, a youth pastor is the you 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 look forward you look to the future like if you're anticipating summer camp you look to the future and you look for that move of God. Well, when I when I get to summer camp, God's gonna move. God's gonna do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna give my life to Christ. I'm gonna get rid of this sin uh, habit. I'm going to be nicer to me. When when I get to summer camp, God will move. What is that? That's the God of the future. Yes, God is there, and He goes before us. But then you get to summer camp, and you're you're in the present, and, and you realize that God is present. God is there. And then when you leave summer camp, what do you what do you look back on? You look back on that moment. You look back on that that time, you think, well, God, I, I want God to show up like he did then. But the, the Bible is very clear. God is always present. You don't have to look forward to something or look back at something. Now, again, are there seasons in your life where you can more clearly see that God was present and God was moving? Yes, but guess what? He is always present. Whether or not you're at summer camp, whether or not you feel it, whether or not you believe it, he speaks, he acts, he preserves, he loves, he teaches, he wakes us up, he gives us life every single day. God is the God of the present. Now, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end, but also he is with you right here, right now. You don't have to wait for God to move. God is present, do you believe that? Next, God primarily works through humans. He primarily works. It's tempting to think that God works in the extraordinary, right? Like, God, why don't you just, uh, you know, make a giant sign in the sky and says, Jesus is Lord. And then everybody will, will, will know. Well, that, that's not how God has worked, you know, and that's not how God does work. How does God primarily work? He primarily works through humans. He works through you and I. He speaks through you and I. Right? When we believe we believe that we are made in the image of God, which means that every time you interact with a human, you see a little bit more of the image of God. And even more so, when you are bought with the blood of Christ and you are filled with the spirit of life and you are a Christian, a Christ follower, a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, you are now filled with the spirit, which means that not only are you just made in the image of God, you are actually filled with God himself. And that's why the church is so beautiful because it is the primary, it is God's, it is God's means, right? It is the primary way that God manifests himself. And, and we like, again, we like to, it's tempting to think that, well, God will, God will work in this way. God will work in that way. What if God just worked in the conversation you just had right before this? What if God works in the conversation you're going to have right after this? Because that is how, that's how we see in the scriptures. With Nehemiah, he worked through a conversation with Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah looked at that retrospectively and he said, that was God. From a pagan king who did not worship Yahweh, he said, Nehemiah said, that conversation was God giving us success. God primarily works through humans. Another thing 
um, the, the final thing. So God is present. God primarily works through humans. The final takeaway is we are in a battle between good and evil. We are in a battle between good and evil. I didn't have time to get into this today. But the two Hebrew words for good and evil, which is the same words for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, those two words are used a total of 10 times in Nehemiah chapter 2. Like, which is just like a hot spot for these two words. That it's, And what it is doing is it is showing us that the will of God is always good. So when Nehemiah gets this approval, when Nehemiah goes back with these, with these words, good, I mean, there's the word favor, there's the word, if it pleases the king, if it, if it, the, all of those words are the word good. Whenever God's will is opposed, it is the word for bad or the word for evil. Sanballat and they were, Sanballat and his friends were opposed to this. They, they were bad. They literally is, they were evil to this. Why does your face look down, sad? It literally is, why does your face look bad or evil? When anything is opposed to the will of God, it is evil. When anything is with the will of God and for the will of God, it is good. Now, you and I are not like Nehemiah in that we're not called by God to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a city wall, right? At least I, I, I don't think any of us are. But what is the will of God for our lives? Well, Paul in the New Testament sums it up perfectly. God's will for your life is this, holiness. That's it. You want to know God's will for your life? Sanctification. You want to know God's will for your life? Holiness. You want to know God's will for your life? Christ-likeness. And guess what? Just like in Nehemiah's time, when anything opposes the will of God, it is bad. In our lifetime, when anything opposes the will of God, it is bad. What opposes the will of God for our life? Sin. Temptation. Evil. The spiritual forces of darkness that do not want us to be holy that do not want us to grow in Christ's likeness. We just like Nehemiah Nehemiah was a little bit more specific for you and I our, our the will of God for our life is just holiness and when anything opposes that it is bad it is evil. You, we are constantly constantly in a battle between good and evil. And this is why the New Testament says we have to we have to arm ourselves with the, the armor of God. We have to take up the whole armor of God because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Who do we wrestle against? We wrestle against the, the forces of darkness. We wrestle against this, the spirits, the principalities, the powers in this evil age. We are always in a, a battle between good and evil. The enemy wants nothing more than for us to look less like Christ. But God's will for our life is that we look nothing more than like Christ. God is present. God primarily works through humans and we are constantly in a battle between good and evil. So just two questions. One, do you believe that? Is it tempting for you to, be to believe that prayer is impractical? That things just happen in life? That I, it's a little weird to believe that God was in that conversation. I don't think he was. I think it just happened. Do you believe that God is present, that God works through humans and that we are constantly in a battle between good and evil. And then finally, I, I didn't get to touch on prayer because we talked about prayer a lot last week, but do you pray like you believe that? A question that always convicts me is if, if God, you know, affirmed all my prayers or said yes to all my prayers, would my world change or would the world change? Do we pray like we believe that God actually can change things? 
Do we pray for healing, spiritual healing, physical healing? Do we pray for lives to be changed? Do we pray for cities to be changed? Do we pray for the world to be changed through the, the, the radical love of God? Do we pray like we believe that God is actually present and God actually moves? Martin Luther is famous for saying, I have so much to do today. I need to get up three hours early and pray. Now, what he didn't mean is get up three hours early, pray for a little bit, and then start his day and have more time. What he meant is I need to get up three hours early and pray for three hours before I start my day. Do we pray like we believe that God moves? And so with that, before we take communion, I, I just want to leave that with you. Nehemiah 2 and 3 is just a picture of what the, the characters in the Bible believe, what, what the biblical worldview, if you will, is. It's not a closed world system that is closed off to God and his prompting and his moving in the spirit. And so if, if the Lord is prompting you right now, if the Lord is speaking to you right now, I want to just give you that moment, that time to just sit and reflect. Um, and then in just a, in just a few minutes, uh, I'm going to come back up, pray, and then um, Tom will lead us in, in communion afterwards. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.